Tonight's reading will be from Esther 1, verses 1 through 12. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles and the, of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. This is God's word. You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline? Raise your hand if you need one. 100%. Star for, for Joe and Gabriel. Well done. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to come tonight and to, to press our mind into this really great but not very well-known book of the Old Testament, Esther. Thank You for it. And thank You for all the ways that it touches our heart and instructs us, Father, on Your hiddenness. Thank You, Father, for, for the greatness of Your grace that is evident throughout history but most personally evident in our own life in the way that You have changed us and brought us unto Yourself, Father, as Your children. Thank You for the sense of confidence and significance and purpose that You give us for the sense of a clean conscience. Thank You for all of these things, Father, that, that bless us abundantly each day. And as we, we study Your Word tonight, Father, we pray that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to look at Esther. And just uh, I just want to say right here at the very beginning that I think it's a shame that, that this book is never really studied except in uh, female settings. Female Bible studies, ladies' Bible class, ladies' retreats. Uh, to me it's a fascinating little book that I think would be great uh, as a study for a men's retreat. It teaches men a lot about God. It teaches men a lot about what it means to be a proper man. And it teaches men what real beauty is all about. Uh, before we jump into this text, though, there are some really interesting facts 
about it. Uh, as you know, we have gone from, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. We are now with the Persians and what they have done in, in uh, allowing the, the Jews to repatriate the land. But to kind of give you an overview of where we are historically, there's a list of these, uh, these Persian kings that I want to give you. Uh, you don't have to write these down, but you can t take notes. It kind of give you an idea of where we are historically in the world. Uh, you had Cyrus II, who is the Second Chronicles 36, uh, king of Persia, who allows the people to go back and repatriate the land. That's 559 to 530 B.C. After him, you have Cambyses the, uh, the second who rules until about 522. Then you have this guy, that, what <laughs> all the historians call him, the so-called uh, Ramada, who rules just for one year. And then after him, from 522 to 486 B.C., you have Darius Hystaspes. And then you have Xerxes, 486 to, uh, uh, to 465. That's our man tonight. And then following him, his son, who was ruling at 18 years of age, Artaxerxes I, who ruled until 424. And then Darius II, who ruled from 423 to 404. Esther takes place during the reign of this king Xerxes uh, we find him in a lot of the Bible translations referred to as Ahash Verosh in Hebrew. He ruled from 486 B.C. to about 464 B.C. This is the guy that, if you ever saw the movie that came out maybe, maybe five or six years ago, 300, which was about the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae against the, the Persian horde, this is the king that we're talking about. He is the king, the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C., ruled this tremendous empire from India to Ethiopia. Uh, you know, if you were to ask me to display all of my wealth, all of the wealth of my, uh, my kingdom, it'd be about 180 seconds. But this guy was able to display the wealth of, of, of his empire for 180 days. He ruled from India to Ethiopia, but he ends in um, sort of a bad way. He's born in 519 B.C., but is assassinated at 54 years of age by his nephew Artabanus, who is the commander of the royal bodyguard. There's nothing like having treachery in the bodyguard to bring a man down. Now, that, that's kind of where we are in the history of the world. This, the book of Esther is taking place sort of right there at the beginning of, of Xerxes' campaign toward Greece and then those years following that. And, uh, uh, you know, it kind of gives you an idea of where we are in terms of world history. Now, just a couple of facts about this book. The name Esther appears 55 times in this book. Nowhere else in the Bible. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle. No one's really sure who wrote the book. Josephus, if you read Josephus there in the first century A.D., he's going to say that it's Mordecai who wrote it, which could make sense because Mordecai would know the Hebrew, the, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Persian names and the, the Persian words and, and the geography of Susa. Uh, and you find that in Josephus' Antiquities. The Talmud says that it was the great sages of the great synagogue who wrote it. We're not really sure who did. But what we do know is that throughout history, Esther has belonged to the five scrolls or the five megalot or the five festal garments. Those books are made up of the Old Testament writings of Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentation, and Esther. And Esther especially was used as sort of a, a, a liturgical reading during the great festivals. Now, uh, before we get into the book, three statements about the theology of the book. Number one. Esther is an example of Jeremiah 29 being fulfilled among the Jews of the Diaspora. 
The Jews are, are in exile. They have been taken to Assyria, those ten tribes in 721 B.C. Those ten tribes are taken into oblivion, into exile, into captivity, never to be seen again by the Assyrians. The Assyrians go down to the Babylonians. The Babylonians begin in 605 with one exile. They do a second one about 596 B.C. Uh, and then they do one in, uh, in 586 B.C., the third one, which is the gigantic exile of all of the people into Babylonia and the raising of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And it's during that exile that Jeremiah writes a letter and says to the people who are in exile, you need to just settle down and, 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 and live your life as the people of God in the city. In Jeremiah 29, there is this letter that says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The book of Esther and the events in the book of Esther is basically Jeremiah 29 being fulfilled. You have Jews in the diaspora, that is, they are dispersed throughout the world. These particular Hebrews of Esther are found in Susa, and they are seeking the good of the city and are flourishing in that city. So, Esther is also an example of God's hiddenness and sovereignty. Another really important fact about the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned in this book. Now, there's one other book in the Old Testament where God is never mentioned. It's the Song of Solomon. But God is never mentioned. Uh, the Jews uh, uh, are, are fasting during a crisis. And, well, just because God's name is not mentioned doesn't mean that God is not working behind the scenes. For instance, when the Jews are fasting in chapter 4, verse 3, and 16 and 17... These fasts that were always done in a crisis, when the nation was called to, to, to fast, it was always done in prayer to God to move and to act on behalf of His people. Uh, Haman's wife and his friends, when they find out about how Mordecai has been honored, and Haman has to be a part of that, and Mordecai is, is, is being honored by, by Xerxes himself there in chapter 6, Haman's wife and his wise men, his wise counselors, tell him that he cannot prevail against the Jews, which presupposes a knowledge of Israel's past history and their triumphs because of God acting on their behalf. Uh, in chapter 4 and verse 14, Mordecai's statement that if, if Esther does not speak uh, to Xerxes about their deliverance and their need to be delivered from Haman, then deliverance will arise from another place. Now, uh, although that's debated, there's some sense of God's hiddenness and His sovereignty working in that statement. Uh, next, a Jewish girl being at the right place at the right time to save her people. The fact that she was born for a time such as this implies God's hiddenness and His sovereignty in working in the history of His people. The king's sleeplessness and just happening to peruse and remember the story of Mordecai saving the king's life, therefore exalting Mordecai in his own eyes, just having to do that right before the feast and right before the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the hanging of, of Mordecai just seems to be, again, God working to make sure His, his presence is known. 
Uh, a fellow by the name of Webb, a professor who's written a, a, a book called The Five Thessal Garments, says this about the hiddenness and sovereignty of God in the book of Esther. He says, God is present even when He is most absent. When there are no miracles, dreams, or visions, no charismatic leaders, no prophets to interpret what is happening, and not even any explicit God, God talk, He is a present deliverer. Now, uh, you, you know as well as I do that the history of the world is the history of men sometimes not reading the great acts and the great movements of God, of not discerning that until afterwards. And so here I think Esther is an example of God's hiddenness and sovereignty working in the affairs of men. And then thirdly, before we get into the story, Esther is also a great example of the great reversals of the Bible. And you know what these are. The most prominent ones that we know are the ones that Jesus Himself taught. They're, all, they're throughout the Bible, but you'll remember these that Jesus spoke. If you want to be first, then you've got to be last. If you want to be great, then you have to be what? The servant of all. Uh, Proverbs 29, verse 23 says, Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain what? Honor. Let's say that verse together. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Let's say it again. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. And that is where this story begins. The story begins with a demotion and a promotion. The story begins with the demotion of Queen Vashti. King Xerxes holds a long, long banquet. There's a lot of drinking without any kind of restrictions put on it. It's in, according to verse 3, in the third year of his reign. Now, if you begin in 486, and it's in the third year of his reign, what year would that be? 483. So this feast is taking place in 483 B.C. Now, at some point... Along this probably 180 days of feasting, at some point Xerxes, who's displaying the, the greatness of his kingdom, wants to show everybody the greatness of his queen. And so he invites the beautiful Vashti to come out and to be put on display in front of all of these guests. Now she refuses, and that makes Xerxes, who is the king, very, very furious. Now we're not told why, we're only told this, that in verse 12, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became what? Furious, and he burned with... This guy is not used to being told no, especially by his queen. Now, here, here's an interesting thing. A, a fellow by the name of, of J. Stafford Wright, uh, in an article some years ago, he argues convincingly, I think, that Vashti is refusing to pose before this drunken banquet because she is pregnant with Artaxerxes I. Now, you remember, there's Xerxes and then there's Artaxerxes I, his 18-year-old son who takes over when uh, Artabanus assassinates Xerxes in, uh, in, in, um, uh, at, at the end of his reign. Artaxerxes is 18 years old when he comes to the throne in 464, 465 B.C. That would mean, if he's 18 years old, which we know that he was when he became king of Persia, that would mean that he is born in what year? 483 B.C., the year of this banquet. Now that fits if Xerxes began to rule in 486, the banquet which, according to Esther in 1.3, was held in the third year of his reign. It would be 483 B.C. Now, Xerxes, now remember that day, 483 B.C., we'll talk about that in a little bit. Xerxes is not used to being told no by the queen. 
And he's angry and he demotes her and he begins to search for a new queen. And this is where Esther now comes on the scene. She is a, a Jewess living in exile in Susa. She is in the household of Mordecai. She is his Mordecai's uncle's daughter. But Mordecai is this really gracious righteous man who does not want to see this, this child grow up by herself as sort of an orphan. So he brings her into his own household and he treats her like his own daughter. And we're told in chapter 2 and verse 7 that this young woman, who was also known as Esther, her other name was Hadassah, which means myrtle in Hebrew, had a lovely figure and was just beautiful. And she goes through all the training and the spa treatments to prepare for her to pass before the king. And there's cosmetics and all of these things. Now, we, be, now we, we sort of just glide through these dates and we think, you know, this is probably just a couple of months, maybe a year at the most. You know, Vashti has done her deal. She's demoted. Esther's going to be promoted. It's about a year-long process of going to the spa, getting in shape, being beautified, all of this in order to be worthy in her beauty to pass before the king. It's not a short process. As you know, Xerxes decides that he's going to go to war with, with the Greeks and the Spartans and, and all of those folks. And that is a campaign that takes place from 483 to 480 B.C. Now, what we know is in 480 B.C., he comes back to Susa, and it's during this period of time that we read in Esther chapter 2, verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the what? Seventh year of his reign. Now, we know from chapter 1 and verse 3 that the banquet in which Vashti is demoted happens in the third year of his reign. Now, by the time chapter 2 verse 16 rolls around and, and uh, Esther is brought before him, it's now the seventh year of his reign. Now, what has happened is you've had the banquet. You've had him go off and to fight the Greeks for three years. Now, he is in the seventh year of his reign. He is back in Susa. And the king verse 16, was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, that's the demotion and the promotion. Now we come across a plot. It's not long after this that Mordecai, her, 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 uh, her, her, her guardian, who is sitting in the gate of the city, and the gate of the citadel discovers that two men, Big Than and Teresh, are angry with King Xerxes and they're plotting to take his life. And Mordecai, because he understands Jeremiah chapter 29 and the letter to the Jews in exile that says, you know, pray for the city. If the city prospers, you prosper. Pray for the city to flourish. Mordecai reports the plot to Queen Esther and Esther informs King Xerxes in Mordecai's name that these two cats are trying to take your life. It's discovered to be true after it's investigated. The two men are apprehended and they are hanged. And in verse 23, at the end of that chapter, all this was recorded in the books of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, nothing else is, is said about that. It's just Mordecai did a great, solid kind of favor for the king. It's recorded in the annals in the presence of the king. Now, from there, though, we go to the opposition. The story is now going to switch from Esther and Vashti and the demotion and the promotion to the plot with Mordecai and the two angry uh, servants of the king to the opposition. This is where Haman comes in. And Haman is, is from a long uh, descendancy of Amalekites. 
He is, he is uh, related to Agag, who was a king of the Amalekites, who are the eternal enemy of the people of God. And Haman is described as an awful, prideful fellow. That he wanted everyone, when he walked in front of them, to bow down before him and to pay homage to him by the, ways, by the so many ways that Xerxes had promoted him. But Mordecai refuses to do it. When he walks by, Mordecai does not bow down. Mordecai does not pay homage to him. And when Haman, in verse 5, saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was what? Enraged. It's kind of the, the, the key emotion for Haman. Pride and rage are his two e- e- emotional uh, generators. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so Haman gets the ball rolling by getting King Xerxes to sign on. Letters are sent throughout the empire stating that all the Jews were to be annihilated on the 13th day of the 12th month, with, uh, the 12th month which in the, uh, the Persian Empire was the month of Adar. And their goods would be plundered. And when Mordecai gets a copy of this letter in his hands and finds out what's going to happen to all of the Jews in the, in the, in the land of the, of the Persian Empire, he finds out about it, he tears his clothes in anguish and goes to the center of the city and begins to cry out and to wail. Well, word of what's happening to Mordecai comes to the ears of Esther. She hears that Mordecai is, 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 is so upset about something that he's in sackcloth in the middle of the day, in the middle of the city. And she, because she loves him so much, this is the fellow that has taken her in and provided for her and been her counselor. She, the Bible says, and the New American Standard says very graphically, that she begins to writhe in anguish. She's upset that he's upset. And she sends clothes for him to be changed into and to bring him back, but he refuses. And so she tells Esther's, uh, he tells, uh, she tells uh, her eunuch, Hathach, to find out what's going on. If he's not going to change into these clothes and come in and, and let me take care of him, find out what he's so upset about. And Mordecai tells Hathach, he relays the information to him and who brings it back to the queen and gives her a copy of the text to show that it's true. That that the reason he's out there in the middle of the city in the middle of the day, mourning and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes, the way that he is, is because his people and her people are going to be wiped out by Haman. Haman's got Xerxes in on it. And he instructs Esther. He says, you've got to go in. You're the queen. You've got to go in and you've got to ask the king for help. And she's, she's savvy. And she knows the politics of the courtroom. And she says, you know, I really can't go in the king's presence, into his court, without permission. If you go in without permission, you're going to be killed. If I do that, if I don't have permission, I'm going to be killed. And he's not called me in for 30 days. And here's where Mordecai replies at the end of of chapter 4. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Well, Esther determines to intercede 
But she, again, is not just savvy, but she's spiritually aware. And like Nehemiah, she knows that when you have this great task where there's a lot that's hanging in the balance, you don't want to go in there with just the power of your two hands and the intellect that's between your two ears. You need God to lead the way and to open doors and to soften hearts. Remember what we talked about this morning? God is the King of all kings, right? He is the one that is able to move the hearts of kings and, and to open those doors. He does it for Nehemiah. He changes the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He does it for Cyrus, who allows the people to repatriate. She gets this, and she determines, I'm going to intercede, but we need to fast. We need to pray to God. We need everybody to fast for three days. Which now leads us to the salvation. Esther, on the third day, the third day of the feast, goes to the court of the king, she finds favor to go before Xerxes. Xerxes really has, I think, a, a, a lot of love for Esther. She asks for Xerxes and, and Haman to come to a feast. You know, Xerxes says, what, what can I do for you? And, you know, holds out the scepter. She touches the top of it. She says, what can I give you? Even up to, you know, kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she says, I'd like for you to come to a feast and bring Haman along with you. And at the feast, while they're having a great time, Xerxes says, now what is it you want? She says, here's the deal. I really want you to come the next night to a feast as well. Bring Haman. And on that, at that feast, on that night, I will let you know what my petition is. And Haman is just so happy because he's getting to be sort of this inner circle with, with Esther and, and Xerxes. And he ha he's happy. He goes home. He's kind of full of himself because he's a man of pride. And he tells of his acts of glory. He talks about his riches. He brings in, you know, his, his wife and all of his wise men, his counselors. And he begins to talk about all of the greatness of his sons. And he talks about his promotions. And yet, while he's in the middle of bragging about himself, Mordecai comes to his mind. He says, I just, all of these great things that have happened in my life, and I can't get Mordecai out of my mind. Every time I go by that dude, he will not pay me the homage that is due me. He will not bow down. Everybody else bows down. Everybody else pays homage. This guy will not do it. I can't get that out of my mind. Well, his wife tells him, here's what you need to do. You go out there. You're a rich man. You build the biggest gallows that anybody has ever seen before. The next morning, you go to Xerxes. You ask Xerxes if you can hang Mordecai on it. And then that night, go to the feast. Kind of tells you the kind of guy that, that, uh, that Haman is. Can have somebody murdered in the morning, then go have a big dinner that night. Now, things look pretty grim at this point for Mordecai. Except, except that at that very night, Xerxes gets hit with a case of insomnia. He can't sleep. And so he asks for the book of records to be brought in. Now, I don't, I've never read this book, but it seems to me if you the king and you can't sleep, what do you do? You get the most boring thing that you can find, and it happens to be the book of the records of the annals of the king. It's a little boring late-night reading to help you put, to, put you to sleep. Well, while he's reading it, happens to come across the fact that Mordecai, he comes across that Mordecai saves the day account with the assassins there at the, at the gate and how it's relayed to him through Esther. And he notices that it's all written down, that this all happened, but that Mordecai has never been honored. He's never been thanked. The king has never shown his appreciation. So the next day, Haman goes in to see Xerxes. We know what Haman's going to ask for. His wife's told him. Zeresh has told him, go in, build the gallows, have him hung. He goes in the next morning, and before he can ask to hang Mordecai, the king says... I have a question to ask you. Might I get your advice on something? Haman says, shoot. 
He says, what is the way to honor a man in such a way that only the king can honor him? Now, Haman is either overly angry about something, or his other go-to emotion is pride and arrogance and hubris. And you know that he's not angry right now. He's kind of happy because he's going to do away with his enemy. So the pride begins to take over. And what is it that he begins to think, church? It's him. He's the one that Xerxes wants, wants to honor. So he begins to put out all of these elaborate plans about a horse that the king has ridden on and a robe that the king has worn and all of these things. And he's marched out. And, and Mordecai gives this elaborate way of, of, of just honoring the man that the king wants to honor. And Xerxes says, man, that's awesome. I'm so glad I asked you because I could not have thought of that myself. And then in verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for, say it, Mordecai. <laughs> Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. And then this, do not neglect anything you have recommended. Oh, it just gets caught in his heart, his throat. Well, he does it. He just can't stand himself. And all of a sudden his wife says there in chapter 6, she says, this is not looking good. You are beginning to fall before Mordecai, and he is a Jew. And you know the history of the Jews. People fall before them because of their God. Well, later that evening, Mordecai goes to the feast. After honoring his enemy, Mordecai, you can imagine Haman, is probably ready to tie one on. It's then while they're all sitting there at the table, then Esther reveals her request. Now, here's the thing that's kind of interesting. Xerxes, who has sent out the letter that all the Jews should be annihilated, for some reason is playing a little dumb in front of Esther. And he asks, what? What? Now, who in the world would do this? And Esther, in chapter 7, verse 6, says, an adversary and an enemy, that's who? This vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, Xerxes is in a spot. You know, he's the one that sent that letter out. At the same time, Haman is the guy that can get... He's angry. He's, he doesn't want to displease Esther. He loves Esther. So he goes outside for a minute to collect his thoughts. So angry and upset is he. In the meantime, Haman is terrified. He knows what's going to go on. Haman rushes over to Esther to plead for his life. And in his rush, what does he do? He trips over the Persian rug like everybody else has done in their lifetime, and he falls on the couch as he's trying to plead for his life and falls right on top of Esther, just as Xerxes walks into the room. And Xerxes goes, will you even assault the queen while I'm even in the palace? Well, it's not very uh, a, a, a good scene that plays out for Haman. Haman is hung on the very gallows that he constructed for Mordecai. And a decree is sent out giving the Hebrews permission to defend themselves, and they are in the end saved. And as you know, when you read the end of the book, the word per uh, means lots, and uh, the festival of Purim uh, is instituted at the end of Esther that is celebrated by the Jewish Hebrew people to this day. But who would have thought that this little Jewish kid, without a mom or a dad, who was more beautiful than all the rest, would save her people? Reminded of another of whom it was written, but when the, the set time had fully come, God sent His Son born of a woman.
who was raised by a man, not his father, but treated every bit as much as a son. Except where this woman was beautiful, he had nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. And where the woman risked her life to go into the king's presence, this one gave his life in order to go into the king's presence and to make atonement for sin in order to save his people forever. That's why the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 2, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jeff, we'll lead us in a song right now. And, and maybe you have, have never put your, hands, your, your life in the hands of the Messiah. This is the one who was born at just the right time. At born at the time that God put it all together after, after over 400 years of silence. After 400 years of silence from Malachi, from about 420 B.C. until about the year 4 B.C., silence. And then born in a manger in Bethlehem. And goes off into obscurity in Egypt, only later to return, the change of a king, only to end up in Nazareth. And after 30 years of life, comes into his own ministry, and in that ministry, teaches and does the miracles and opens up the kingdom of God for people to enter into, not just for a period of time, but for all of life. And the way that he says that you do this is you trust in him, which means that you look for the forgiveness that he provides, but it also means that there's more to it than just forgiveness. You know, so many times we do things in life that just make us feel like we're filled with crud. And we think that what we need is forgiveness. And we do. We need forgiveness. I mean, we need to be forgiven by God. We need forgiveness in order to enter into that relationship. But you know what else we need besides that forgiveness is change. We need to change. That's what repentance is all about. It's about saying, I'm going to be a different kind of an individual. I'm not just going to be forgiven. I'm not just going to be saved. I'm going to be transformed. I'm going to be conformed to the image of that Messiah. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And when you're baptized, you're participating in that death, burial, and resurrection in such a way that as Jesus died to sin and was buried in that tomb and raised up to newness of life, when you go down into that water, you are dying to sin and being raised to newness of life. It's not symbolic. You are participating, according to Romans 6, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And from that point on, God puts His Spirit in you. And it's about becoming more and more beautiful with each and every day in the eyes of God as He transforms you and sanctifies you and conforms you by His Spirit, degree by degree, day by day, into the likeness of Christ. If that's something that's on your heart tonight that you would like to have done, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Come down and talk to them. And for the rest of us, let's stand and let's praise God together. A love that goes from east to west and runs as deep as it is wide.